Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This season, we're discussing how the Bible speaks to Asian American biblical scholars and how the church shapes and informs their scholarship. I'm Jeanette Oak, your host. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today on Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast, where we talk about all the things related to Asian American Christian life and living out the Asian American Christian faith. My name is Jeanette Oak, and I serve as Associate Professor of New Testament at Fuller Seminary. And it's a special honor to be a guest host of this particular season because I get to talk with biblical scholars who love the church and who want to see how to bridge the distance between the church and the academy. This season has asked the question, why does biblical scholarship matter for the church? How are biblical scholars shaped by and do their work for the church? And how do they challenge and help mature the church? To help us explore such questions, I've invited my friend, Dr. Chloe Sun, to explore and talk a little bit more about this. So let me first introduce you to Chloe. Chloe was born in Beijing, China. She grew up in Hong Kong and was educated in the U.S., and she, I won't list all of her schools here, but I'll give a shout out to Fuller Theological Seminary where she completed her PhD in Old Testament. She's been teaching Hebrew and Old Testament at Lagos Evangelical Seminary in Almanti, California since 2004. And Chloe is passionate about teaching and preaching and writing about the Old Testament from fresh new perspectives so that lives can be transformed. And as you look at her impressive list of books, you can see that she really is committed to that endeavor. Chloe has written and contributed to many books, including her most recent, Conspicuous in His Absence, Studies on Song of Songs and Esther, published by IVP Academic in 2021. It's a very rich and beautiful study on the divine absence in Song of Songs and Esther. And in 2020, she published Attempt Great Things for God, Theological Education in Diaspora, published by Erdman's which is about what God is doing in the diasporic seminaries and where she explores what diversity looks like in the future of theological education. She wrote an important piece on recent research on Asian and Asian American hermeneutics related to the Hebrew Bible published in Currents in Biblical Research in 2019. Chloe has also written a commentary on the Song of Songs. She has written multiple devotional book series, including Praise to God, Psalms 1 through 72 in 2019, in which she offers her own meditation and reflection on these psalms, as well as her own translation in Chinese. So Chloe, I could go on and on about your bio, but I'll let you share about your life yourself. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeanette, for having me. Yes, it's a long list of books and publications. And that's a reflection of how my interest is uh, in the biblical scholarship and in the life of the church. So um, the devotional series uh, is a part of what I'm passionate about to bring out the insight from scripture and how those insights can transform or change uh, one's relationship with God. So I'm really excited to have this opportunity to chat with you, Jeanette. Yes, thank you. So can you tell us what you've been up to lately? Okay. Is there a biblical uh, text that's been exciting you or some kind of work that you've been doing that's uh, yeah. giving you energy? Well, I, I love this question. Um, I, I, I love when people ask me, you know, what are you working on? You know, what's, what's going on with your current research? Okay, currently I'm working on a few projects. Okay, one of them is on the Song of Songs. I just presented a paper at ETS on the male body in the Song of Songs, chapter 5, verses 10 to 16. 
And so how do we read this portrayal of male body in the song and how does that relate to the church? Hmm. So that's something I'm trying to explore. And so one of the ways that we can read this song uh, in Song of Songs 5, 10 to 16 is to see it from the perspective of uh, a glorious body of Jesus. <laughs> that's hmm. the more allegorical way of uh, interpreting that text and how that glorious body has broken for us and how as believers, we should respond to the sacrifice of Jesus. So I have a lot of um, steps of how to jump from Song of Songs to the allegorical meaning. Do you mind reading that passage for us? Would you? Oh, sure. Okay. You could open up to that. Okay. I'm not sure how familiar our listeners are with the text. I just... I see, yeah. yeah. So Song of Songs 5, verses 10 to 16. You want me to read the whole thing? Sure. Okay. My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves, besides streams of water bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with pearl. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Mm. How do you preach that <laughs> to the great church? Question. That's such a great question. Yeah. Tell us, yeah. Chloe. <laughs> okay. So there are different ways we can preach about this text. First, we have to see it in the context of the Old Testament. So as the woman paint this portrait of her beloved, she's actually expressing how she feels about him. Mm. And this beloved, uh, if, if, you, if you understand Hebrew, uh, a lot of descriptions about this beloved's body, it's actually uh, overlapped with the descriptions of the temple. Mm. And, um, and so this body um, actually points to God. Mm. And so early Christian readers would take this body as referring to the glorious body of Jesus, the believer's beloved. So one way we can apply this passage to the church is through the, the lens of beauty. Mm. Um, you know, the beauty points to God and beauty is expressed in the body, the embodied Jesus who has given his whole body mm. to us. And so as we take the bread and the cup uh, in the context of the communion, we can actually read this text and then meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus. And another way to read this text for the church is that when this woman shared the image of her beloved with her friends, she's doing it in the absence of her beloved. And so a lot of times beauty is also in her memory of her mm. beloved. And that memory is based on her prior experience with him. 
And so in relating to our relationship with God or, or, or with Jesus, we need to have that intimate relationship in order to make it to become a part of our memory so that in times when we sense the absence of Jesus or God in our lives, we can always go back to our memories and to seek those intimate moments so that we can have the strength to face the present and the future. Wow. That's one way to read it. I'm sure there are other ways to read this. That's really insightful. And just to recap a little bit. So you're using the lens of beauty Mm -hmm. because beauty reflects and points to God Mm -hmm. and it points then to the embodiment of God through Jesus Christ. Yes. Yes. You got it. (laughs) But then also that the importance of having intimacy memory Mm -hmm. with the beloved Yes. So that when God feels absent, mm-hmm. God's presence is conspicuous to go to the other time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So a lot of times God's presence and absence, they're not either or, you know, sometimes they can coexist uh, depending on one's relationship with God. Right. How you frame it, how you see it. That's really rich, Chloe. What are some other ways in the text that you see the, the presence of God in the seeming absence of the beloved. You know, a lot of times God's presence is reviewed through his creation. So in the Song of Songs, there are multiple garden imageries, mm-hmm. the trees, flowers, birds. And this garden is like uh, the Garden of Eden. It's like a temple, garden temple mm-hmm. of God. And so through God's creation and through um, the love between this man and the woman in the song, they indirectly help us or lead us to sense the presence of God mm-hmm. in their relationships and also in their environment. Uh, this environment uh, I'm referring to is the garden, the garden context. The literal environment. The literal environment. But and their relationship. Yes, yes. But then the literal environment can be metaphorical, referring to the temple of God, like a paradise. Anyways, I have a lot to talk about if you want me to Keep ask. Keep going. Keep so, going. I'm soaking it in. Do you still want me to talk about Song of Songs or other sure. projects? Sure. Please keep going. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think the reason is, Chloe, I don't think we, we had known enough about the Song of Songs or okay. even hear it in preaching and teaching in the church. So I think that this is a great time, a great opportunity to just let it loose, let share, okay. share your Share more about the Song of Songs. If we're more familiar with the pro- prophetic books, uh, they're all male oriented. And then they tend to treat the female body as uh, the object of God's punishment. Mm. Uh, because Zion is personified as a female and she has a body. And so... When Zion sinned against God, one way God uh, punished her is punishing her body. Mm -hmm. So in the Song of Songs, we see this picture of a beautiful female body and male body. And it's the opposite of what the image uh, uh, in the prophetic books. So I think Song of Songs is uh, like a counter text um, Mm -hmm. that runs against the dominant image of male-female dynamic in the prophetic books. And so in a way, it restores the intimacy and, and love uh, in, back in the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. So I think this book has a lot to say to, to marriage, 
to our relationship with God, to the difference between male and female, and to the way how we should express our loves to one another uh, in the context of marriage. So in other words, this book has a lot to say. Yes. To us. And the voice of the woman mm -hmm. is so prominent throughout yes. the book. Yes. Like that counter narrative that you're talking about. And, mm -hmm. and and not just in her portrayal, but in through her words. Yes. She gets to say. Yes. It's so remarkable. Is there anything particular that a particular passage that you find often just something really curious or often not talked about at all? I just, I'm putting you on the spot here, but. <laughs> uh, you mean uh, in, in the Song of Songs? Sure, yeah. Okay. Well, the passage I, I read, you know, I never heard a sermon on it. Yeah, about that's so true. Body. I have never heard a sermon. And then uh, in chapter four, there is the image of the bride's body. Mm. Uh, I never heard a sermon on that. How might one approach such a thing? Yeah, okay. For early Christians or early church fathers, uh, they would approach this text as referring to the bride as the church. And so all these details about her body parts, uh, actually how Jesus views the church and that this church is wholly desirable and beautiful in the eyes of Jesus. So that's the uh, metaphorical and the allegorical reading of the text. But then if we take it literally, I'm talking about Song of Songs chapter four, verses one to seven. If we take this text literally, then it's the groom praising the bride's body uh, right before they consummate their marriage. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be a little challenging to preach at the church where there are all kinds of people in different walks of life and different stages of life. But then in a marriage or a couple's uh, retreat, or a, in a fellowship setting, then I guess, I think preach this text would be more appropriate. Maybe not for uh, <laughs> children's, yes. a children's Children gathering. Or but... singles or widow, widower, you know, or someone who's divorced, then, you know, they it might trigger some unwanted memories. Mm. That's a good challenge, I think, and uh, an invitation to think about how to preach and teach the Song of Songs with this, which is part of our canon. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yes. When I first taught Song of Songs, I uh, only taught the literal, uh, literal sense. Mm. But then later on, as I preached at church about the Song of Songs, I realized, you know, I cannot just stay on the literal level because that would not reach everybody. And then the Song of Songs is part of the canon, it's part of the word of God. And so in order to preach it, we have to elevate it to the metaphorical and the allegorical level so that it can be applied to all people. Hmm. And also, you know, genre, correct? The type of text it is invites a different approach to reading, let's say, than the historical books. Yes. Can you just right. say a little bit about genre? Well, for those who don't know, genre is another way of saying the type of literature. And for the Song of Songs, it's a song. So as a song, it's not a story. Um, it can be jumpy, you know, it, it gives us different scenes in a musical tone. So there is the beauty, there is the idea of an imagined world. And so as we preach this text, we're not using an analytical mind to read it. Uh, we have to use some imagination, some poetic uh, way of seeing this world that, um, that is described in words mm. uh, through the song. 
So this genre, um, yeah, it's it's a love song. Mm. So we have to approach it that way. For early, let's see, Jewish people, they actually consider the Song of Songs not as a poetry, but as a parable. Ah. A parable describing the relationship between God and Israel. And so identifying the genre of the Song of Songs shapes how we read the song. Right. That That's very important and sometimes hard to convey, mm-hmm. like as if it's a one-size-fits-all approach to reading a text. Mm-hmm. Is there, are there any cautions you'd give to how to read the Song of Songs? Because sometimes people jump to allegorical reading without mm-hmm. understanding the context of the poem, uh, the love song, or is there any dangers to too quickly reading it through a Christological lens? This is what I would tell my students when we first read the Song of Songs, because Song of Songs is part of the Old Testament canon. So we have to read it through, through that lens instead of just jump right into the New Testament, the Ephesians, how Jesus loved the church. So in that uh, Old Testament context, we need to understand the cultural context that virginity is important for women back then. Mm. And so losing that, uh, the consequences Mm. of losing that is death a lot of times Mm. uh, in the the Mosaic laws, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22. And so through that lens, then we understand why the women in the Song of Songs repetitively warning her friends, do not arouse love until it is ready. And so uh, we've heard this phrase, true love waits. Mm. I think that's one way to preach the song too, true love waits. And so for younger people, um, not reaching the marriageable age, then um, reading the Song of Songs, we need to, I guess, be cautious, knowing that this is not for those who are not ready to get married. Good point. And, yeah, and Song of Songs is for the mature in the lovers that who are ready to enter into marriage. Right. That would be one of the warnings. Oh, that's helpful. That's really helpful. We could go on and on about this, but I wanted to ask you about your journey toward becoming a biblical scholar, the one that the, the biblical scholar that you are today. Can you share some important people or events or markers along the journey? Thank you for the question. I went to seminary uh, right out from, uh, of college because I was sure and certain that's God's call. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to be. I thought I could be uh, a pastor at church or I could be a missionary. So I wasn't sure at first. But the first course that I took at the seminary was Hebrew. And when I studied Hebrew, I felt like I I came alive. Mm. I found my calling. Mm. And what do you do with Hebrew, you know? And because of Hebrew, I started to fall in love with the Old Testament. And as I look around my classmates, they were all complaining and suffered through Hebrew. Mm. But here I am, I rejoice. I was so happy and excited uh, of learning this new language. I, I just, I felt like I was born for this. Hmm. So because of that, that I fell in love with the Old Testament and I started praying, you know, God, what do you want me to do in the future? You gave me this gift of Hebrew and the Hebrew is the language of the Old Testament. Do you want me to teach uh, the Old Testament, to teach Hebrew? 
in a seminary context. So that was the first year of my um, seminary and I started praying. During my second year, one of my Old Testament professors, and by the way, she's the only Asian American female professor that I ever had in my- Who was she? Elizabeth uh, Lailing Nan. Um, okay. She retired now. She went to Baylor later on. Okay, she was the one who pulled me aside uh, one day and then she told me that, Chloe, I can see you as a biblical scholar. So that was the second year of my MDiv. And that comment, you know, I never thought of it. I, I, I never mm. I guess, see myself that way. But then um, this professor saw something that I didn't see in myself and she believed in me. And I guess that's a prophecy <laughs> coming from her. And so that was a defining moment. And from that point on, I kept uh, praying. And um, because of that moment, I wanted to become like her. <laughs> I wanted to become a biblical scholar. So did you kind of go straight into it after your seminary time? Um, there was one year break. I had to give birth to my son. That's a lot of time and energy, let me tell you. Uh, that's a full-time job, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure you know. Yes, yes. I have more kids than I do. Giving birth to a ch uh, child and taking care of uh, my son, it just, it, it was overwhelming. So I, I, I took a year break in between my studies. Did you have any other encouragements along the way? Were there any challenges to this sense of vocational clarity? Mm, you know, I, I was certain that I, this is what I want to be. Challenges, financial challenge was one of them. Thankfully, you know, God has provided along the way, but there were moments of, you know, financial challenges. Yeah. And another challenge would be from my parents because I was the first Christian in my family. And I first went to seminary. My parents were not Christians yet. So without the support or blessing from my parents, that was, yeah, that was a, a huge challenge. I would encourage those who sense the call, sense the calling to pursue uh, the path of biblical scholarship or, or to become a scholar. I think we need the, the certainty from God and along the way. So that calling should help us to to endure and persist. And I can only test testify that if God calls you to do something, he has a way to make it happen and to provide for you. So that would be my encouragement for the listeners. It really stands out to me that someone called out that they saw in you this potential to be a biblical scholar. Mm -hmm. I myself too did not grow up thinking I'd become a biblical scholar. I didn't even really know that was a thing. <laughs> it wasn't until I was actually at an undergrad at mm -hmm. you know secular university where that idea that vocation came came to mind because I you know was taking courses in early Christianity and the historical Jesus and uh, Apostle uh, Paul and everything and so the importance also of having those take the time to speak that idea speak life into or encourage that which you might not have thought about yourself. Mm -hmm. Yes. Not that you wouldn't have gotten there. You might very well have become a biblical scholar, but just to have someone take you aside and to invest in your journey, to mm -hmm. encourage you along the way is so powerful. Yeah. And I hope that if you're listening out there and you see a seminary student or a person in your church or in your community, who you see has the gifts and the potential uh, and the passion mm -hmm. to be a leader or a scholar 
mm-hmm. preacher, teacher that, that we would take the time to walk alongside them or to even call out and affirm that gift. If you see it too. Right? Yes. Yes. So that's why I am um, trying to, to do the same to my students as well. If I see a certain gifts, I would tell them um, the gifts may not be become a biblical scholar, but I, I would say, oh, I, I think you, you would be a great pastor or um, someone who is so caring or very analytical or something. I just point it out and say something positive and as an encouragement. Hey, I'm Daniel Lee, the Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary's Asian American Center. I hope you've been enjoying Centering. Our vision is to provide substantive conversations on topics that really matter to the Asian American Christian community and to others who care about us. This work is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Your contributions help cover the production and editing of this podcast and continue to affirm that this work is important to our community. To support Centering, please visit fuller.edu slash giveaac. Again, that link is filler.edu slash giveaac. Thank you for listening. Yeah, so, you know, Claire, I was reading uh, an article about you in a Patheos Cruxola feature, and there's something you said in it that I wanted to ask you more about. So I'm going to quote you back to you. Is that okay? okay. <laughs> All right. So you said that in the Western academic world, A woman of Asian descent who holds an evangelical faith belongs to the category of minority or margin. Because of this social location, I tend to be drawn to the overlooked texts or ideas in the Old Testament. My scholarship focuses on the megalith and the wisdom books, as well as contextualized readings of minoritized characters in the Bible. I'd like to bring them to the center. I believe these texts and characters have so much to say to the rest of scripture and to us today. So my big idea would be amplifying an alternative voice end quote. (laughs) So can you say more about this? Sure. Uh, It's a big question. And it was a really um, important point that you're making here. Okay. First of all, I know this uh, podcast is about Asian American, right? And biblical scholarship in the church. So just uh, a a side note, um, Asian American is a big umbrella. And for me, that's part of my identity, but that's not the whole identity. Because uh, I also see myself as a minority. I'm also a Chinese uh, diaspora, diasporian, and so it's it's a it's a complicated identity, and because of this social location, it really affects how I read the scripture, and so I usually pay attention to those uh, characters who embrace uh, more than one culture, but two or more cultures. And um, those border crossing characters and stories that most people may not pay attention to. And so all these marginalized characters or stories, they are actually a part of scripture. Yeah. Right? Great point. And actually Song of Songs and Esther, these two books are also marginal in a way because they're not like Genesis or Isaiah or Deuteronomy or... um, Exodus, those mm-hmm. big books. But then they have a female voice. And then the absence of God's theme also complement the dominant presence of God's theme. Mm-hmm. And without that absence theme, then the presence of God seems 
plane, you know, seems one-dimensional. Uh, one and so in the same way uh, that my, the minority characters, the marginalized stories, the Asian American identity or stories are actually a part of the whole. Mm -hmm. And without that voice, scripture is not complete. And God's world is not complete. And so I would encourage um, all those uh, who identify themselves as Asian Americans or minorities that um, we have a voice mm. to give. And our voice is important because we complete the whole. Mm. And texts like the ones you focus on, like Song of Song and Esther, mm -hmm. Ecclesiastes. Well, you've done some work on Ecclesiastes too, am I? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I um, published an article on the place of Ecclesiastes in the Maculot. Right, but how those texts to give voice, uh -huh. right, to the multiplicity of, in, of ways of engaging, encountering God, mm -hmm. God's people. You know, um, for my conspicuous book, I, I didn't mention anything about my own social location. But then the way I chose those two books in a way, indirectly mm. re represents who I am as a minority woman in the academy. Just like Song of Songs and Esther, they're minority female texts in the whole male canon. Yeah. But now you have this opportunity to speak to your social location and the complexities of your Asian American Chinese diasporian identity. So would you, is there, do you want to talk about Esther a little bit? Okay. Um, Esther from the, okay. Uh, I just focus on its the, uh, theology, huh? focus okay. on the absence of God. So um, if we take Esther out of the canon, out of the scripture, just reading the text by itself, we can say that God is not there mm. or God is hidden behind the scenes. But then if we put Esther back to the canon, we have to wonder, you know, is God actually absent? Even though his name is not being mentioned in the text, but he has to be there somehow, mm. hidden. And, and so I, I like the canonical reading of the text because it presumes the presence of God. But a lot of times the presence of God is not um, apparent like in the other books. Um, and so I think Esther is another countertext. Uh, it is also a book that counters the, the dominant mode of God's presence and mm -hmm. God's deliverance as in the book of Exodus. So without this book, then we lose that aspect of God's way of working in human history. In our times, you know, we sometimes may not sense God's presence, just like in Esther's time, you know. So during those times, we have to take, in a way, matters into our own hands through what we know about God, um, through what he expects of us to do good for our people. We have to be resourceful. Resourceful and, and have that wisdom from God, even though, um, you know, God's not there, but God has given us resources, inner resources or scriptural resources nowadays mm -hmm. that we, yeah, based on those, we can do the next right thing. Yeah. And communal resources. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Are there any other border crossers from the the Bible that have a lot? There are a lot. You'd like to voice or talk about Joseph, Moses, Ruth, Bathsheba. Some people wrote U- Uriah. It's a lot already. Yeah, I know. Oh, Hagar, 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 Hagar. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. Hagar. Mm-hmm. And and those who have embraced more than one culture and had right. to negotiate their vulnerability within, you know, depending on where they're at. Mm-hmm. In those spaces. Oh, Chloe, I can. Can I ask you questions too? Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Of course. All the examples that I mentioned are from the Old Testament. What about New Testament? Because you are a New Testament scholar. For those, uh, are there any? I mean, Paul is obviously is one. Other than Paul and Jesus, are there other characters that embrace more than one culture and identity? Yeah. First, I guess I'm thinking about like the Syrophoenician woman. Okay. Uh, she she's willing to enter into enter into a space where she may not initially seem welcome or doesn't seem like fits into the narrative mm-hmm. of what God is doing, and it was willing to you could say transgress boundaries and borders uh, to claim a part of her place in God's kingdom, mm-hmm. God's That's activity, it. God's yeah. grace. So she comes to mind. Okay. I think a lot of the women, whether they're they're Jewish women or not, but you know it's the it's an Advent season. Mm-hmm. But you think about Mary, mm, that's right, and the crossing that she takes. I mean, if we're going to stick with the Matthew narrative, for example, mm-hmm. she's really in her position of vulnerability, in her position of trust, and great risk and peril to her mm-hmm. life in multiple ways. I think she, and she, in at least in the Matthew narrative, is literally border crossing. Right, that's right. Joseph and Jesus. I think they, they are, she is a character who is one who has to navigate and negotiate multiple, multiple obstacles mm-hmm. and carry with her a promise <laughs> embodied in her. Yeah. That, you know, she really doesn't have a choice in, in right. doing it. That's right. I think about like, in Acts, how there are a lot of characters who are engaging different cultures and who are border crossing there as well, mm-hmm. like Cornelius and Cornelius's engagement with Peter mm-hmm. and how in that interaction, in that engagement, they themselves are needing to embrace the other by embracing and assuming that God is at work mm-hmm. in what seems so un, un, so unkosher. Right, right. Wow. That's amazing. Thank you. That's off the cuff. I, you know, I think about Brian Blunt and he actually in his SBL presidential address when he gave, I think it was in 2018, he talks about the the hermeneutic of border crossing Mm, and how, you know, in the classroom too, I I try to teach my students to think about how they can become border crossers Mm -hmm. in their way of reading biblical texts and in engaging it's a kind of uncomfortable thing. It's painful, even very disarming, very potentially you want to kind of build up some sort of defense mechanism mm-hmm. in order to, uh, it, to to avoid that kind of engagement that actually requires you to cross over, to go to another side, mm-hmm. um, hermeneutically, um, for example. And so I know a lot of word, a lot of things are coming to mind as you talk <laughs> about border crossing. I know yeah. you meant it maybe differently initially, but I, I resonate with even just that metaphor. Right, but you, you're, you're right. Yeah. Biblical text in a different world and time and culture. And so as we do interpretation, we need to do the border crossing. Yeah, 
on a practical personal note, you know, it's, it's the academic life. Some people consider it in a way romantically, like, oh, it's so cushy, but I don't experience it that way personally. Um, and I know you're very busy in ministry and you teach a lot, you're writing, you're parenting, you're, you're serving in the church and in the, in, 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 in many different parts of the guild or guilds, I should say. And so how do you stay healthy and creative or passionate about your work? Okay. How do you stay sane and balanced? Okay. That's a really good question. Okay. I love to eat. <laughs> I'm with you there. So food uh, helps me to enjoy life mm. and that helps me to be happy. And when you're happy, then uh, creativity comes. I have a dog. I play with my dog and I talk to him. And my dog has taught me a lot of things about life, such as do not worry about tomorrow. Because mm. <laughs> um, tomorrow has its own troubles. And my, my dog never worries about tomorrow. So true. <laughs> he has food and he has that also has to do with you being a good own, a good parent <laughs> <laughs> yes and I also like travel I enjoy travel when, when I travel I see different things I, I, I learn and I see God's creation and so that helps me to broaden my own world and to imagine myself in different places and that helps me to have creativity and try to think things you know, outside of the mode or the box. Mm. And the passionate part, whatever you're doing is what God calls you to do and, and you enjoy it, then you will be passionate about it. Uh, if you're not, then maybe, I don't know, you have to rethink, is this what God calls you to do? Or um, does he gifted you to do this and stuff like that. So mm. I guess also have out space, you know, for personal time. Yeah. The time because we're always giving you know yeah. giving to other people or serving and so that alone time is is, is very um precious it to really maintain same same gotta protect it <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> and lastly chloe and, and i just want to reiterate how much i've enjoyed our conversation but can you give advice to help our listeners delve into deeper study of the bible okay well if you see the scripture as a treasure, you know, we all want to seek out treasure. And, and so if you are able to see the scripture as, uh, as the guide to your life, as a way to give you a direction. So how you see the scripture will help, uh, will determine how you want to read it or approach it. So for those who are, has the aptitude to learn languages, I would encourage you to learn Hebrew and Greek because these two languages will open up a different world for you to, to read scripture. Yes. You're here. Uh, yeah, the scripture will be colorful, full of insights. And then uh, another way is to, the practical ways to color your Bible as you read. Um, for like literally highlighters and such? I, I use colored pencil. Um, I'll show you. I, I know the, okay. the audience cannot, cannot I'll see. I'll try it. to describe it for our audience here. Okay, like for God's name, I would colored red mm. for personal names green for animals will be blue for questions will be orange numbers will be yellow so i have a color color system and that's so fun you know as you color your bible one after another there is a sense of accomplishment and joy 
that's just one way to um, make reading scripture fun. I love that. And it means you also have to have to have, I'm sorry, mumble uh, that. Go ahead. It also means it helps to have a hard copy, not just digital. That's right. That's well, it'll be harder to highlight in, in, in your digital version. Yeah. I, I have many hard copies and then, yeah, I, I, I color my Bible. Love that. I'm going I'm to take um, that up. You can, you can design your own color scheme, you know. You just have to have like a little um, key to, to remind yeah, remember that's right. colors. But it will become second nature as you right. color it. So that, that's a fun way. Another way to uh, delve uh, into scripture deeper is to journal. Mm. Uh, what did God speak to you through today's reading? And then if you share that, you know, keep track of that. You'll see, oh, God has been speaking to me on this date about this thing. Oh, God is real. God is just so near and close. And, and then that makes you, you know, want to study God's word more and more. That reminds me that to your point earlier, they talk about the importance of prior experience and memory of mm. the bride's beloved and song a song and how this journaling yes. and, uh, creates a memory. The, yes. the, even the coloring of your time in, in, in the Bible studying, it creates a memory uh, of your, of the way God has been speaking to you over That's time. Right. That's right. Janelle, you have a really good memory. You remember <laughs> what I said earlier, and then you're able to connect. Oh, That's wonderful. Well, Chloe, thank you for your time and for the gift and the treasure that you've opened up to us today. And I wish you all the best as thank you continue you. to do your amazing work. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss how the Bible speaks to us. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.